Amen. If you will turn in your Bibles once again to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. I encourage you to open to page 915 and follow along. You might wonder why is it that we would spend all this time reading. Well, we do that purposefully because we believe it is not only the reading and the preaching that God uses, but that he uses his word both in the reading and the preaching for his purpose. And so, indeed, follow along with me as we carry on, beginning in verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols, rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your young god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as it was spoken to Moses, directed him to make it, according to the pattern which he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Please be seated. There are certain individuals in time and history that I had never met, but I wish that I could have. Certain people that made significant impacts with the life that was given them. 
in church history, for me, it would be people like Athanasius and Augustine and Martin Luther and Amy Carmichael. In secular history, it would be George Washington, Winston Churchill, and Martin Luther King Jr. Men and women that were inspiring in many ways. Likewise, I have those in biblical history. Certain individuals that were used by God for a time and a place and a greater purpose. And that greater purpose was the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, I've always admired Caleb, one of the faithful spies that went against the majority opinion and said that he wanted to go into the land and encourage the people to go into the land. Why? Because the Lord was on their side. In the New Testament, there's individuals, especially coming out of the Advent season, like Simeon, who waited long for the fulfillment of the promises of God. And once receiving that promise and seeing the Christ child, could say, I depart in peace because I have seen your salvation. Well, one other such hero of the faith is the one that is before us this morning in the book of Acts, that of Stephen. He's already been introduced as one that was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, of grace and of power. And you can see why this morning in his stirring speech that he delivers, these are indeed heroes of the faith, so much so that if I had three more sons, I would name them Caleb and Simeon and Stephen. But I tell you this morning, that ain't going to happen for the Smith family. So I make my plea for you that have future children. Let me live vicariously through you and name your sons, perhaps even your daughters, Caleb, Simeon, and Stephen. But even more than just naming, my prayer is that their same spirits be in us and in our children. A holy boldness to believe and to trust and to act when no one else is willing to do so. To do so even in the face of opposition and disbelief. That's exactly what Stephen does with great determination and conviction. Knowing that such words would ultimately mean his life. But it was a cost that he was willing to pay for the glory of God and the further exaltation of Christ and his kingdom. We will look at Stephen's speech, his sermon in two points, and I'll give you those two points in a moment, but there's a few things that I want to point out as preliminary thoughts. And the first is the, the context of this chapter. I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Acts, so it's important for us to remember what is taking place. You remember in chapter 6 that Stephen was chosen as one of the deacons, and those deacons were chosen as a result of the neglect of the Hellenistic widows and the daily distribution of food. And out of that need came the creation of the office of deacon that we still have to this day. And they were given this task so that the apostles, so that the elders could give themselves to word and prayer. But what we see in the life of Stephen specifically is that these deacons, even though they were given to a physical uh, need, a physical task, 
That does not mean that they were not spiritual men. In fact, Stephen's life fully disproves that fact. Stephen fully was a man of the Spirit and a man of wisdom and understanding of the Scriptures. So much so that it says in chapter 6 that there were those that were trying to dispute him. And it says in verse 10 that they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit in which he was speaking. And so because they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit that was given to him, they go to other tactics, proven tactics, false witnesses, and a smear campaign, which was also, as you remember, was used against our Lord. And what are the accusations that are brought against Stephen? Well, you see them back in chapter 6 and Verse 13, it says, they set up false witnesses and said, this man never seeks to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So you hear the two accusations that this man speaks against the holy place, the the holy temple. And this man says that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy and change our customs. In other words, Jesus is changing everything. And these men are trying to change everything of our history and of our past. Those are the accusations. And to them, Stephen gives his defense. And it's those that we will focus upon this morning. But his speech is much more than a defense, isn't it? Even though Stephen is the one that is on trial, he turns the table and he becomes like the prosecuting attorney against these religious leaders. He becomes like a prophet of old that brings covenantal prosecution upon the people of Israel. And so you should not see this speech as just a history lesson or even an apologetic or even an evangelistic message. You notice that there is no Jesus Christ and him crucified here. There is no repent and believe. Perhaps Stephen would have gotten there. But as we will see, Lord willing, next week, that they do not allow him to get to that because they they are filled with such rage and hatred against him. And why is it? Why is it that they have such anger against Stephen? Well, because here is, by all indications, a Hellenistic Jew, which means a Jew that's culturally a Greek and thus to them like a Gentile, that is schooling them with their own scriptures and bringing prophetic judgment upon them. Now, Stephen does it with respect and honor. As you see, he begins with those titles, brothers and fathers, because knowing that all authority, even authority used illegitimately, is ordained by God. But he brings upon them indictments, and indictments of the nth degree. The very fact that he uses the Old Testament history as if they did not know it, would have been absolutely offensive to them. Because remember, he's not speaking here to the Romans. 
He's speaking to the high priest and the religious leaders of the day. Stephen is saying to them, let me tell you a history. And the leaders are thinking, what is he doing? This is our history. How dare you tell us our history like we do not know it? But Stephen is saying to them, but do you? Do you know your history? I think not, he is saying. Because if you did, you would not be accusing me of such things. No, you do not know your history because you do not know the scriptures, nor do you know the God of the scriptures. In fact, you have made this land, you've made this temple, you've made your very own religion an idol. And as a result, you have missed the Holy One. And in fact, you have betrayed him and murdered him. And why is that? Because you are stiff-necked and an uncircumcised people that always resist the Holy Spirit. So much so for being seeker-sensitive, right? But what I appreciate about Stephen's sermon is that this is not just history, some bland facts of people and places long ago that have no relevance. No, Stephen is saying to those people that day and through the Holy Spirit saying to us this day, no, this is our history and we need to learn from it. It is the revelation of God to us. And in fact, it is more relevant than this morning's news. And so here are the two points that Stephen gives in his sermon. They're really in response to the two accusations that are placed upon him that he turns around and by the holy power of the Holy Spirit convicts those that are listening that day. And the two points are this. It's a holy God, not a holy place. And second, the rejection of the Holy One. If we focus on those two themes, if we pull upon those two threads, I think you'll see that that is what is woven throughout Stephen's sermon. Now this morning, Lord willing, we will only take that first point and next week we will look at point number two. But for this morning, Stephen's point is that it's a holy God, not a holy place. As I said before, that accusation against Stephen was that this man never speaks, ceases to speak words against the holy place. See, the people's holy place can mean many things. No doubt it meant the temple, but it also meant the land and the nation, them as the people of God. It is a combination of all of those things because those religious leaders saw them as one in the same. God is with us. We are God's people because we have this land and specifically we have this temple where God has chosen to dwell. And so Stephen says to them, let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about this 
holy place. And let us remember the history. And he begins, as you see in verse 2, with the history of Abraham. And in part says, do you remember Abraham? Do you remember where he was when the Lord called him? Was it here in Jerusalem? Was Abraham a good Jew? No, it says in verse 2, that the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. In fact, we know from the rest of the scriptures that Abram at that time was an idol worshiper, just as his father was an idol worshiper. And yet, what does Stephen say? That the glory of God appeared to our father in that place. Now, when a Jew heard the glory of God, what is it that they would have thought of? Well, they would have thought of the Shekinah glory, that glory that filled the temple, that glory which was the presence of God. What is Stephen saying as he begins this speech? Where was the Shekinah glory? Where was it that it first appeared? It was not here. It was not in the temple, but it was in pagan of all pagan lands, that of Mesopotamia. In other words, God does not need the land in order to do his work, in order to show his glory. God did his thing even in a far off and foreign land. And really that is the theme of the entirety of Stephen's speech. And he goes on to say when Abraham was brought into the promised land, how much of it did he possess? Notice verse 5. It says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Here what Stephen is saying, that Abram didn't even possess a, a square foot of the supposed promised land. Every place where his foot fell was not his, but was somebody else's. And that was true of all of the patriarchs. But what did God give them instead? You see it in verse 8. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Again, what is Stephen saying? God did not give our fathers a land. And he did not give them even a temple. You know what he gave them? He gave them a promise. He gave them the covenant. And he gave them a covenant sign. In other words, they had nothing that was tangible. They could only hold on to this promise that was the covenant itself. Well, Stephen goes on. He says, Joseph. Joseph was rejected by his brothers so that he could be sent ahead, so that in time of famine he would be in a position for Jacob and the rest of Israel, which we are told in verse 14 was at that time 75 people could have a place of refuge. And there they remained for 400 years. Again, Egypt, was that the promised land? Not even close. The, every Israelite would have repudiated that thought. It'd be like 
Georgia or an Auburn fan saying that Tuscaloosa is the promised land. They would never say that. Nor would any good Israelite say Egypt was a part of the promised land. And yet, what is Stephen's point? That God was with the people of Israel. He was not there because he had a land or because he had a temple. God is not just the God of Israel, but of Egypt and of the whole earth. And we can move on to look at Moses. There, Moses was rejected by his brethren and he was sent out of Egypt. And where is it that he went? Where is it that he met God? Was it in Israel? No, verse 30, we are told that it was in Midian, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, that there was the burning bush. There came the voice of the Lord, that I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Notice, that was holy ground. Not Mount Zion, not the Temple Mount, not the Holy of Holies, but there in the wilderness of Midian, that was holy ground. And it's there that Moses was called by God to lead the people out of Egypt. And where is it that they dwelt? Where was it that they entered into? Well, we're told in verse 36 that they were able to perform signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Indeed, God was with them. God dwelt there in the wilderness, not in a building, but in a tent. And that was true during the days of Moses and Joshua, even all the way through the days of David, King David, we're told in verse 47 that it wasn't until Solomon built a house for him that God had a house. And yet, what does Stephen say? Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Because as our prophets say, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things that mankind cannot make a house for the infinite and almighty God. The point is this. The work of God throughout history has not taken place in a space, but rather God was in Mesopotamia. He was in Egypt. He was in Midian. He was in the wilderness long before we as the people of God entered into this land. And even here in Israel, his presence is not contained by a building or by a house as if you can house the Almighty. How foolish. And so Stephen is saying to those people that day and saying to us this day, Our faith is not in a holy place. It is in a holy God. The nation of Israel, the land of Judah, Jerusalem itself, the temple were all signs and symbols of something greater. 
there are visible items to point to the much more important invisible God. But Stephen is saying you've traded the reality for the sign. And yet our forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David never had any signs. They only had the reality. Why? Because their faith was not in what was seen, but what is unseen. That is exactly what the author of Hebrews says as well, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then he goes on to trace the Old Testament history and those saints that walked by faith and not by sight. And that is exactly what Stephen is saying in his sermon here. And what is so interesting, what is so fascinating by that is that the book of Hebrews is written by whom? Now, we don't know for sure, but most scholars believe that it was the Apostle Paul, to which I would concur with that thought and that idea. Who was it that was there this day when Stephen gave his sermon? Well, it was then the unconverted Saul. But do you think that after his regeneration, After his conversion, Paul remembered what Stephen said? Yes. I believe that every single word rang in his ears the entirety of his life. In fact, this is the longest recorded sermon in the entirety of the book of Acts. How is it that we have it? Well, we don't have it because... Luke was there. We don't think Luke was there. No, we have it because Paul was there. And Luke, as you remember, was a companion of Paul. And so no doubt Luke got it from Paul who dictated perhaps the whole thing from memory. And so who is it that taught Paul? Who is it that taught the apostle of grace that it's grace through faith that we are saved not in what is seen but what is unseen? I think Paul would say that his first earthly teacher was Stephen. That his words on that day came to him with searing conviction that only brought about anger and brought about wrath, so much so that he is the one that leads in the execution of Stephen. But I would think that it was days later that indeed Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, indeed saw that this was the word of truth. That this was the Old Testament history. And that the Old Testament history is one of faith. So much so that Paul will later write to the letter to the Romans and say to them, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. And where is that power of God for salvation found? It's found in the righteousness of God as revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you hear that? It's from faith to faith. That Abraham had faith. To Isaac and Jacob whom had faith. 
to Joseph who had faith, to Moses who had faith. It's faith in God. It's not faith in a place, and it's surely not faith in a building, but in God Almighty. See, faith is not a New Testament concept, beloved. It's a biblical concept. And it's the true believer concept from the very beginning. As many of you know, I love the book of Psalms. Come on Sunday nights. We're going through the book of Psalms right now. And one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses. It's the only Psalm that is written by Moses in the entirety of the Psalter. It makes it the, the oldest Psalm that we have. And I believe it's strategically placed in the Psalter. And do you remember how it begins? Do you remember how Psalm 90 verse 1 begins? What is it that Moses wants to say from the very beginning, from the very onset? He says, oh God, you have been our dwelling place. You hear what Moses is saying? That it's not in a land. It's not in a nation. It's not in a temple. Why? Because Moses never had any of those things. Our faith is in God, who is our dwelling place for all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What is Moses saying to us? All that we have is God. That is what Stephen is saying. He's saying to those people on that day, you are children of Abraham. Why do you not have the faith of Abraham? You are children of Moses. You are taught by Moses. You call yourself teachers of the law. Why do you not have the faith of Moses? He says it's because you've rejected Abraham and the fathers and Moses. The same way you've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, as we will see, Lord willing, next week. But we cannot move on from this point. This is so vitally important to us today because Jesus says the very same thing to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You remember it. In this conversation, this woman asks this question that is on her mind. She says, as a Samaritan, We worship at this mountain, but you, Jews, say that we're to worship on that mountain. And so where is it? Where is it that we are to worship God? Remember what Jesus' response is. He says, woman, the hour is coming. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But rather, it is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Because the Father is seeking such persons to worship him. It is the only passage that I can find where it says that the Father is seeking something, that he is desirous of something, that he is looking for worshipers, worshipers that are not looking for a holy place or a holy experience, but are seeking him as the holy God. That is what he wants. That is what he desires. And is that the reason and the motivation for which you come this day? Last week, my family were not here at Smyrna Church. 
And I have to say that my children were legitimately upset. They wanted to go to their church, which made this father's heart very glad. Now, I know for my children, and know fully, that for them, church means donuts and friends and oftentimes food. And I hope and pray that worship is in there too. But it made me examine my own heart and hopefully yours as well. Am I content with just the the trappings of church rather than what makes church church? See, is church the liturgy or the music or the people or the friends or the fellowship? Sure, that is all a part of it, but if that is it, then we might be no different than those during Stephen's day. And I think Stephen would say to us this morning, Abraham didn't need good coffee. Isaac wasn't looking for a singles ministry. Joseph wasn't looking for the right kind of music. Moses didn't need a perfectly heated or cooled sanctuary with padded pews and a nice service that wrapped up in an hour so he could beat the Baptist to lunch. (laughs) All of them were looking to God. They came to meet with a holy God. And they were bold enough to ask for a holy God to come and meet with them by faith. And where that happens, Stephen says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that, beloved, is a holy place. That is a sacred place where the people of God come together as priests of the new covenant and dwell together as the dwelling place of God. That is more holy. That is more sacred than the temple itself. As I have said and will say again, If you have opportunity to go to Israel, please do, but please do not call it the Holy Land because it is not. If you want to go to the Holy Land, if you want to be on holy ground, then go to church. Go to where the people of God worship and meet with the Holy God by faith because there is no more holy and sacred place than that. And that is what we do Sunday morning and Sunday evening. That is what is the the important focus upon what we do as a church, that we worship God together as the people of God. And there is nothing greater this side of heaven than that. There's nothing more important that we can do than that, that the holy ground is where Jesus meets with his people. And that can be in this place, in this dwelling, as much as it can be in the the African bush. That we come to worship and meet with God. And what a special place that is. What a privilege it is to do so. And so, yes, take me to church. Gather me together with the brothers and sisters of God, the fellow pilgrims and sojourners of faith. Don't think that what we do is not important. This is the most important thing that we ever are able to do this side of glory.
And then in glory, what is it that we will do? We will only enter into that worship that much more, enter into that presence of God in a more fuller and more beautiful space than this. This is where my faith, at least in part, becomes sights. And so I don't know how to say it any other way, my friends. We have too low of a view of our God. And as a result, we have a too low of a view of our worship. And so we are not to play around when we come. We are not to desecrate this place with trivial things or take it up with earthly matters. The world is full of that. You get all of that during the week. Leave it at the door. As you come, come to worship God. Come into this place. Come to meet with the Almighty And we desire to have a worship that is so transcendent and so imminent that it seems like we are transported into the very presence of God himself. We would touch, as it were, the face of God in our worship. Now given we fall far short of that, I do and you do, because of our sin and because of our weakness and because of our coldness of heart, but should we not cease To seek? Should we not pursue such desires? Should we not try to continue to to reform and perfect our worship? I say yes and yes and yes, because our God deserves nothing less. Let me finish up with this thought this morning. This passage should give us incredible hope for the new year. As a year has passed and we begin anew, we should begin in hope. Why is it? Because we hope in ourselves? Absolutely not. It's because we hope in God. That just as God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia and Joseph in Egypt and Moses in Midian and the Israelites in the wilderness, will he not also be with you? Has he not promised that he will never leave you or forsake you, even when you are in a foreign or far off place. Our God indeed is near. Why? Because he has been and always will be our dwelling place. Psalm 73 says this, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is our hope, beloved, and we have no other. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, what a a man Stephen was, full of conviction, full of truth, full of the Holy Spirit, one that would have us to not focus our thoughts so low on such earthly things, would have us to look upon you, our God, in all holiness and reverence, all fear and wonder, with all awe and glory, that we would be completely overwhelmed with who you are as our God and the redemption that you would send through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this day, this week, at the beginning of this new year, Lord, would you expand our vision It would encompass a much greater and larger vision of you. 
so much so that it would consume the rest of our lives. We would not be so concerned about the things here below, but our thoughts would be on you, the God above. We would give you that glory and praise and walk as obedient followers and disciples of yours, obedient worshipers, all to your glory and praise, we ask. We pray in Christ. Amen.